If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17 this morning. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, in these next few moments, we would look to you to move in our midst, to move in our hearts, to hear your voice through these words, and that you would give us insight and direction how they apply, how they intersect with our lives today and where our hearts are. And pray that uh, we would come away not just convicted, but encouraged by the hope that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title for our sermon this morning actually comes from a book by that same title by James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love. And in that book, he raises an interesting question. He suggests that the most fundamental question of the Christian life and Christian discipleship in particular is this, what do you want? That's the question. In other words, following Christ is not so much an intellectual project or pursuit as it is a hungering and thirsting for God to desire what he desires, ultimately, to desire him. You know, it's easy to say what we believe to be true about Christ, about the gospel, but fail to live it out. And I think we can all identify with that tension and this disconnect between what we say we believe and actually how we live reveals that our desires, our love is disordered. In another place in that book, he says, we cannot merely think our way to holiness. The desires of our hearts drive our behavior. And our behavior reveals what we love. This is why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. I don't know if you're like me. I don't, I don't always enjoy speakers that use a double negative to make a point. So I apologize ahead of time. But I want to say this. We cannot not love. That's how we were created, to love and worship the Lord. 
We cannot not love. So the question for us is not whether we will love something, but rather what will be the object of that love. That is the question. And we see this issue at stake in our passage this morning as John contrasts two very different objects of our love. And he begins with this exhortation in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, John had just given his audience some encouragement, some assurance of where they stand with the Lord in the previous verses. And after affirming them in their faith, giving them reason for assurance, he proceeds to exhort them on the basis of that assurance. It's as if he's saying, if you know the Father and the Son, and if you know your sins are forgiven, and if you know you've overcome the world, do not love the world. What is John referring to here, this love of the world? Well, based on what follows in this passage, this love for the world is primarily a path of self-gratification. It's explained further in verse 16, which we'll get to in a moment. But I think we could just summarize and say this love for the world, the world is comprised of worldly attitudes and desires or values which are opposed to God. So it's world in the negative sense. All that is opposed to God. Some have pointed out in 1 John, there's an interesting parallel between how John speaks of the world and how he speaks of the devil. Speaks of them in same same similar terms. And that would be a good association for us in our own minds as we think about the world. There are many other passages in Scripture which sort of speak to this issue that John is raising. And one particular passage I want to read is from James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notorious example of this in Paul's ministry is the individual Demas. We get a few references to him, but he apparently was a ministry partner with Paul in ministry. And we read in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Paul saying, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. There's somebody in full-time ministry falling in love with the world and deserting Christ. So love for the world is incompatible with the love for the Father. Put it differently, if you are loving the world, you are not loving the Father. They cannot exist side by side. Are you guilty 
of trying to do both at the same time. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In the book of Proverbs, as you read through that book, you'll see two paths laid out before us. The path of wisdom and the path of folly. Two paths. Yet how often do we try to forge a third path? One that is perhaps a compromise between the two thinking to have the best of both worlds, so to speak, but end up only forfeiting the best for the worst. In what area of your life are you trying to do this? We're all susceptible to this way of thinking. We need to stop. We need to stop thinking that one day, one day, we're going to be able to strike the balance between the two opposing paths and somehow avoid self-harm or self-destruction in the process. We won't find that. You will not find that. It's time to call it for what it is, what the scriptures call that type of thinking, Foolishness, folly. Well, John doesn't leave his exhortation in general terms. He goes on to unpack what is in the world in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, he mentions three things here, and notice how each each of these is directed towards our inner desires, not so much outward objects. He's talking about things in here. And he mentions first the desires of the flesh. And many see this as a general category with many immoral connotations in Scripture. This is never really used as a positive phrase, desires of the flesh. It's always a sinful association related to coveting and idolatry. And within this general category of desires, we have two particular expressions, which he goes on to list. Desire of the eyes and the pride of life. Let's talk briefly about desires of the eyes. These are sinful desires activated and expressed through sight. These things are del a delight to the eyes, but run contrary to the things of God. If that language, by the way, echoes the language of Genesis 3. A delight to the eyes, but contrary to God, even in the fall. We might also say issues of sin related to sight are related to walking by sight rather than walking by faith. 
There's connections there. And we're easily fooled by outward appearances that we need to be aware of. Then he goes on to talk about the pride of life. What is, what is that? Some translations put pride in possessions, and that's probably getting, getting out to what he's thinking of here. This pride of life is pride in what one has and what one does. It be a fair summary of what he's talking about here, which would include a whole host of sins. Related sins like presumption, envy, jealousy, and so on. You know, Jesus speaks about this in his parables. Uh, right off the heels of the parable of the rich fool, in Luke chapter 12, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he goes on to say, Rather, be rich toward God. In the parable of the soils, where the word of God is planted and cast down onto the ground, he says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke out the word. And it proves unfruitful. As the Puritan Thomas Brooks said, a man may have enough of the world to sink him, but he can never have enough of the world to satisfy him. No matter how many possessions you have, you may be sitting there thinking, well, you know, relatively speaking, I don't really have that many possessions to, to take pride in. Well, that's not the issue because he's talking about the inner desires of the heart, regardless of how many possessions you have. We are prone to become prideful in those things, making idols out of them. It's what comes out of the heart, not what comes from the outside in that he's talking about. Instead, as children of light, children of the living God, we are to boast in the cross among Christ's person and his work and to walk as he walked. Did you know that Jesus was tempted to be prideful and presumptuous regarding possessions? In Matthew chapter 4, in the temptation in the wilderness, one of the things that the enemy did in that altercation, that conflict, was to present before him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. More possessions than you and I can perhaps even imagine, and all the temptations that go with it. Yet his response was, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You could almost substitute the word love for the word worship in here because they're very closely connected in Scripture. We could almost fairly say his response would include the idea that you shall, worship, you shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. How are these things, 
the desires of the eyes and pride in what you have and what you do, how are these things a snare to you? Are they? Now, verse 16 goes on to tell us, well, it tells us what comes from the world, but we might also ask, as a follow-up question, how does this differ from what comes from God? There are many things we could list here from the scriptures, but just consider a few things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Wisdom coming down from above from God. A wisdom that is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want to set your mind on things above where Christ is? You know, Paul in in Romans chapter 8 makes the observation that the mind, in that sense, he's mind he's using as sort of a heart level, inner man desire. The mind uh, set on the spirit is life and peace. What is the mind set on the flesh or sinful things? Death. You can't get any more contrary than that. Life or death. Now John doesn't stop there. He, he continues to move on to give us a bigger picture perspective. He's not just unpacking what's in the world, but then he moves on to say, I want to give you a bigger perspective on the world and the futility of the world in the context of God's plan, his overarching plan, the world in redemptive history. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now this idea he's already mentioned back in verse 8. At the end of that verse, he makes reference to the darkness that is passing away and the true light is already shining. You see, the defeat of the darkness has already begun. In John's gospel, Jesus speaking prior to going to the cross, prior to his work on the cross, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. This blow to the enemy, this death blow, took place on the cross. This casting out of the enemy. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 makes reference to the fact that the present form of this world is passing away. And his application there in that context is, in other words, we should prioritize all things according to this unfolding plan and live accordingly. Our lives should match this uh, key event in redemptive history. 
not living for the world that's passing away, but for something else. Now, why would this be helpful to consider, this idea in verse 17? Well, as one commentator put it, there is no future for worldliness. There is no future. You know, why love something that's passing away? Isn't that like stepping on to a sinking ship? But more than that, why would you love something that ultimately destroys you, harms you? Why keep going back to an abusive relationship with the world and its leader, who is the enemy of our souls? He's no friend. He's the enemy of our souls. And he's already been cast out. Though he's not inactive at present, he's defeated. This is not insanity to live for these things that are passing away. Only God is worthy to give our souls to, to give our hearts. Back in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 5, we read, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What a wonderful truth about our God. There is no darkness in him. It speaks of the purity of his character. Even in that context, that pure character is presented as a basis or a motive for walking in the light. Loving him by walking in the light. But perhaps this is where our problem is for many of us. We tend toward unbelief concerning the character, the pure character of God. That maybe, you know, just maybe he doesn't have our best interests in mind. And we shrink back from trusting him, for going to him. Have you ever thought this, that you know what? He just might pull the rug out on me. Just when things seem to be going well. Or just when things haven't been going well and I could really use a break in this life. He's going to pull it out from under me. Yet as sinful as we are, we wouldn't have those thoughts about our own children, would we? hope not. Yet we think God does? The one who has no darkness? Let us go back to his word and, and see who he really is. I venture to say many of us have warped perceptions. We've believed lies about his character. Go back to his word and be in wonder of the one who is kind in all his works. That's from the Psalms. Kind in all his works. Who loves us as his children. 
What kind of love has he lavished on us? That we should be called children of God. And he loves us as he loves Jesus Christ. John 17. Think of the magnitude of that love. You know, it's often the most encouraging truths that we have the hardest time believing. What about you? What encouraging truth about God are you not believing today? Don't overlook the positive way that verse 17 ends. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, doing the will of God is related to an expression of love for him. The one who does the will of God abides forever. You know, to believe that truth, to live it out, it's going to be a fight. It's a spiritual fight battle that we're in to believe these truths. I'll give you an example. Jesus said something very similar in John chapter 8. He said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. You know how the world responded to that statement? Now we know you have a demon. That's, how, that's what the world thinks about that statement. The enemy would love for you to doubt this truth. So know that it's going to be a fight. But go to the Lord whose word is truth. Let me give you an encouraging passage that many of you are probably familiar with, but it relates so closely to what we're talking about here in terms of, uh, in light of the big picture context, to think about the world okay, and God's unfolding plan 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. This speaks to this unfolding plan. What we see in this world is passing away. Are you looking to the unseen that lasts forever? So our problem in loving the world instead of God is at least partially tied to not seeing the world in the context of God's unfolding plan. I think that's why verse 17 is so important for us to consider. Well, now let's, let's move on to the most important thing in this whole sermon. How will you respond to these things? In this passage, we've seen how love for the world contrasts with love for the Father, these are two opposing loves. And a hallmark for the children of the living God is to have a love for him and not the world. In a very real way, we are what we love. What do we want most? 
So my question to consider with you this morning is, what do you love? Not just in theory, because this whole sermon is about practice. John says later in chapter 3, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What do you love? Maybe another way to put it, what does your behavior show that you love? I mean, loving God does not bypass the mind, but it does move beyond it. Down to the core of our inner man and our heart. To love God is to be captivated by him. Not just to think about him every once in a while, but to be captivated Or as other scripture puts it, is he your treasure? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now, our digital technology, among other things, has complicated things for us in regard to this issue. I was reading an article from Gospel Coalition Uh, not too long ago, a few weeks ago, and the title of the article was The Scrolling Soul. And his main point in that article was stop scrolling and start beholding. Beholding God. Another statement he makes in that article is your search history tells a story about your soul. story about what you love. Scrolling by nature, whatever device you're thinking of, uh, keeps us on the surface of things. Just kind of jumping around. It steers us away from thinking what lies below the surface. And isn't that falling in to the hands of the enemy? Who often presents the bait and hides the hook underneath. Just scrolling along, not seeing the danger that lurks underneath. This is a key tactic of the enemy. Maybe another way to put a question to us in terms of application. Are you letting a search engine algorithm or a news feed dictate what you think about during the day? And what you consume. You know, I'll think about whatever pops up. You know, whatever headline pops up. And that's going to affect my mood and my level of hope for the day. I think we're all guilty in that regard. But here's what you're missing. You're missing out on beholding the unsearchable depths of God. Our God who is greater than our hearts and able to satisfy and overflow our hearts with joy. Pray to be captivated by him. He alone is worthy of your love. Where is your heart this morning? Let's pray. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves. We are weak and sinful 
in many of these respects. Lord, help us take, to take heart inventory, to deal with those sins in light of the gospel, in light of the hope of forgiveness in Christ, not apart from him, but by running to him with those sins. We thank you that you are a forgiving God who loves your children. Stir our hearts that we would love you back, to love you more than the things of this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.